0: And so let's turn to the second step uh, and see what the next aspect of our journey would be. Uh, And as we've defined it, that would be to acknowledge the specific history and realness of our suffering. Uh, Or as I've titled it in the chapter title, uh, facing pain without running away. Uh, And that's a major change in mindset uh, that I think we need to get our mind around. And, And probably the picture of that that is clearest for me, is when I was trying to teach my youngest son how to swim. Uh, he was not crazy about the idea. Well, Let me change that. He really liked the idea before we got in the water. Uh, when he was watching everybody else have fun, it was a great idea. He got into the water, and it just kind of freaked him out. And, and he's a sharp little dude. He's a good little athlete. And, and there was a moment... he out of desperation, he was listening to everything that I said about swimming. And he was doing all of the motions. But he wasn't swimming. He was fighting the water. Uh, and I think too often, when it comes to us engaging with the emotions of depression and anxiety, we are we're not walking with God through this valley. We are, we are flailing at the emotions and part of what I want us to be able to do is to face the pain without that sense of running or fleeing to be able to acknowledge with a sense of security that God is with us and that we can look at these emotions we can learn important things about our experience of them that will help us address them better because just like for Marshall that was the difference between learning to swim and fighting the water for us Uh, That will be the difference between flailing against the emotions and learning to walk with God through them. Um, And I love the statement from Ed Welch. He says, to be human is to be afraid. We are small and the world is big. I love the destigmatizing of that. It is normal to be afraid. You know, sometimes we're fond of saying that The command "Fear not" shows up 365 times in the Bible, uh, once for every day of the year. Uh, Well, okay, to whatever degree that that biblical math is accurate, it also means that God expects that this is going to be a frequent struggle, and He's not freaked out and upset about it. Uh, He's patient with us in the midst of it. I live in a big world, and when I became a teenager, I didn't know what it was like to be a teenager and I went to college I didn't know what it was like to be a college student. when I became a young adult I didn't know what it was like to be a young adult. when I got married I didn't know what it was like to be a husband. when we had children I didn't know what it was like to be a father when I became a pastor of counseling I sure didn't know what that was going to be like. when our kids leave home I don't know what empty nest is going to be like. when retirement comes I don't know what that is going to be like I just don't know. in the expectation that I am going to walk into it like emotional Teflon. It's kind of dumb. But somehow we get that idea when it's just me talking to me and everybody else looks like they got it together that that's what I'm supposed to be able to do. And Ed Welch says, No. To be human is to be afraid. The world is big and every season of life is new. And God's okay with that. It's kind of how He made it. Um, So here's our goals in this chapter. Three goals in terms of acknowledging the specific history and realness of our struggle. One, to help us assess how severe our struggle with depression and anxiety may be. Two, to determine the different expressions of the depression and anxiety that we experience. Because sometimes we deal with it as if it's like one big ball of emotional mess all tied up in a knot. And we can begin to set some piles off to the side and say, you know, there's aspects of this that are different. And if I could tackle it in some smaller units, I might be much more effective uh, at, trying to, at tackling this thing. And then third, identify who you need to ask to come alongside of you on this journey. David Murray, uh, he talks about why we tend to resist this kind of examination. He says, this can be a painful process of self-discovery. Although we are frail and weak creatures we like to think that we can cope with everything that life throws at us. True? Just because we cope with great stresses at some time in our lives does not guarantee we will cope with lesser stresses at other points in our lives. We age. Hormones and brain chemistry change. And our responsibilities increase as marriage and children come along. Sometimes an adverse reaction to life and events will be delayed. Even sometimes for years okay, we, this is not the most comfortable thing in the world to do, but it's helpful. Now you'll notice there's lots of little questions and this is my ocd coming out here. Uh, you can go through there. We're just going to look at the scoring aspect uh, where we learn some things about some of the types of expressions of depression and anxiety that we feel. Uh, you know, there's generalized anxiety. Um, you know, this is anxiety that is migrated from just a normal sense of being upset uh, to the events of life, to becoming a way of life. Okay, so there's times where this is kind of normal and peaceful. An event comes along that's about this upsetting, and and we get this upset. But then with generalized anxiety, when that's over, we don't come back down here. We kind of live here. And and our baseline for living with it is just elevated. Now, uh, I think Kurt Bingman, he helps us see why our day and age this is particularly easy to do. Uh, He says, in the present age of anxiety, and he's saying our current era of history, uh, one of its defining marks is anxiety, is characterized uh, by the pressing concerns about the threat of terrorism, global warming, the beginning of the end of oil, immigration and pluralism, the widening economic gap between those who have and those who have not, the outsourcing of American jobs. These concerns are legitimate, And they will demand our and our children's undivided attention for years to come. The anxiety we feel is compounded daily, in some cases hourly, by skilled fear entrepreneurs. I think largely he's talking about media and advertising. There's people who have learned that fear makes us do stuff. It gets them ratings. And so they play it up. And again, in a media-saturated age, that makes sense. Uh, Who know how to push our buttons. Uh, As if the issues listed here eliciting legitimate concern and anxiety were not enough, some fear entrepreneurs introduce a host of potentially threatening crises uh, that keep us constantly on edge. And so again, we just go, it makes sense uh, why this is maybe more prominent in our day and age uh, than in others. So there's generalized anxiety and then situational depression. Uh, This is just depression that is proportional in its intensity and duration to the event that causes it. Uh, Major depressive episode. Uh, That's when uh, the intensity and duration of depression uh, grows disproportionate uh, to the triggering event or events. Uh, And it's that spot where we recognize just relying on the passing of time is probably not going to make this go away some other type of intervention in how I'm thinking or engaging in life uh, would be necessary or beneficial uh, to help process this more quickly. Uh, Seasonal affective struggles. Uh, It's not entirely clear to anybody why this happens, uh, but oftentimes in the winter months, it could be the decrease in sunlight, it could be the way it affects our circadian rhythms, changes in activity levels, the way that the cold affects our level of pain, uh, any number of things, but it is common for a significant number of people to regularly experience heightened um, depression during the winter months. Uh, Specific phobias. Uh, Now in terms of specific phobias, if you can identify a particular triggering event and go, ah, this fear began when that happened, it's more likely that you're experiencing a trauma reaction than a specific phobia. But if you say, no, I can't really, I've just always had this weird thing for spiders and it's never as if, you know, this J.R. Tolkien-sized, oversized spider overtook me somewhere, um, then, okay, that's more of a uh, classic specific phobia. Uh, Social anxiety. Again, here we're talking more than just being self-conscious or shy or reticent. Uh, This is when you begin to manage your life to avoid people Uh, And that impairs your ability uh, to function well in life. Uh, Mania. Uh, You can look at some of the symptoms there in questions 41 to 45 and kind of see uh, what's involved there. But this is this artificial unhealthy high. Uh, It's the other pole of bipolar. Uh, Bipolar just means swinging between two poles, one being depressed, one being manic with this artificial unhealthy high. Uh, And Ed Welch. He says, since you might actually enjoy mania, uh, at least when it's not extreme, you might be reluctant to try medication. Talk to a wise counselor or your family about this. You might decide to try medication as a way to better love others. That's just a different way of thinking about medication. Uh, Again, I want to take a very neutral position towards medication. Uh, I don't think it's the answer to everything, but I also don't think it's a lack of faith in God when we take it. We want to ask the question, how do we do that wisely? Uh, That's what Appendix A is about. That's what we cover in the mental illness uh, presentation. Uh, But sometimes uh, it's not just a matter of our personal relief. It's about loving others well is why we might choose to do that. Uh, Panic attacks. Uh, That's when... Uh, The sense of fear that we have becomes so strong, and it spikes, uh, and it arrests uh, our cognitive, our thinking capacities. It begins to arrest our respiratory system. Again, you can look at some of the symptoms that exist with that uh, as you look at questions 46 to 50 there, Uh, but usually the onset of it involves some form of catastrophic prediction. We begin to think, I'm going to die. Uh, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to be alone forever. There's some kind of catastrophic thing that we predict and it just seizes us. Uh, Post-traumatic stress, another uh, struggle that can exist uh, in the depression, anxiety family. Uh, Trauma is just when we're asked to experience something more than we're prepared to go through at the time that we're asked to go through it. Um, And again, that can vary. Uh, It can be Okay, what's traumatic for a six-year-old? Might not be traumatic for a 26-year-old. And the 26-year-old looks back and goes, why was that that big a deal? It was that big a deal because you were six at the time that you were asked to go through it. Uh, There may be a particular stress that we go through that by itself would not be considered traumatic, but there were a lot of other difficulties going on in our life at the time. Uh, And then their cumulative effect becomes traumatic. Now... Uh, post-traumatic stress is a subject that warrants a seminar in and of itself. Uh, it's something that we will come back and address separately. Uh, but I think for a presentation on depression and anxiety, it's important for us to see what the features of that would be so that you would know if what you experience as anxiety has some traumatic elements to it. Obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, you know, obsessive compulsion, kind of two sides of the coin there. Uh, the obsession is some irrational fear and usually we know it's irrational you know you take the classic I'm worried about my hands being contaminated or did I lock the doors and it doesn't matter if I've checked the door seven times and I know that it's locked it's just such a sticky thought that I can't let go of it and I obsess over that Uh, the compulsion is the behavior uh, that I do that I think is going to provide relief but winds up just having this cumulative effect of reinforcing the fear and making it a part of my life. Now when we face anxiety of that nature, uh, we need to recognize it's not the content of our fear uh, that's the biggest problem, it's the pattern of thought. And until we can begin to address the pattern of thought instead of trying to negate the content of our thinking, we're going to stay in that hamster's wheel. Uh, Religious scrupulosity. Uh, That's another, it's kind of a specialized form of OCD. Uh, It's where we fixate on uh, what if we've lost our salvation. Uh, When J.D. says he set the Guinness Book of World Record for asking Jesus into his heart, uh, you know, he kind of looks at this when he goes, was I religiously scrupulous when I was going through uh, that season of my life? Um, But again, I think David Murray uh, gives us a comment here that's not exclusive to scrupulosity, but it just helps us see... Maybe be a feature of this conversation we need to address. He says faith, instead of being a help, can sometimes cause extra problems in dealing with depression. There is, for instance, the false guilt associated with the false conclusion that real Christians don't get depressed. There is also the often mistaken tendency to locate the cause of our mental suffering in our spiritual life. Again, this is why we want to deal with this subject in two different veins. One, we go through it from a suffering paradigm. We go, what what does it look like to walk with God through depression and anxiety when what I am feeling is not the result of my beliefs and my values and my behaviors? And then sometimes it is. And so we'll come back and we'll look at it again from a personal responsibility. And if we're not going to fall into the trap that David Murray is talking about, we need to be able to understand both. And then finally there is uh, depression and anxiety that can become so intense that we begin to consider suicide. Uh, Appendix B, uh, if you have a friend or a loved one going through that, gives you some first aid materials of just kind of what do I do uh, in that kind of uh, situation to help uh, get through that immediate situational crisis. Now, uh, so there's one way to look at depression and anxiety that says we can look at uh, the different types of depression and anxiety that exist. Uh, another way that we can uh, look at it is to consider uh, its frequency uh, and its um, intensity. Uh, and that's where you get this nice little uh, Excel flowchart right here. Again, you'll see all of my personality coming out in these kinds of things. Where you can take um, many of the symptoms of depression and anxiety and begin to track them over the course of um, a day, and a week, and a month. Because um, again, part of our goal is to, is to not fight against the water, um, but to learn to swim, to learn to walk with God in the midst of this experience. And what we want to have is that mentality that depression and anxiety may come, but it is not going to come without giving me significant information that I could get that would help me combat it. But to this point, for many of us, we just haven't had tools to help us collect that information to begin to look at it and go, how would I engage this more effectively? So, uh, when you use a chart like this, what are some of the things that you're looking for? Uh, What are the symptoms that cluster together? You know, which ones of those different things begin to show up at the same time? Uh, When do certain things happen before or after a significant event? Maybe a particular tragedy, the visit from a stressful relative, payday, uh, things like that. Um, When do these things happen before or after other symptoms? You know, there are certain ones that you can go, this one just tends to happen after that one. Or maybe there's a pattern across a week or a month. Um, Maybe it fits with some of your logistical rhythms, uh, like your work week. Uh, if you do shift work, and as you go from night to evening shifts and those kinds of things, or a child custody schedule if you're in a blended family, and, and those kinds of schedules, you begin to notice that it, it correlates there. Or maybe it has to do with some of your biological rhythms uh, that have to do with maybe your eating patterns, maybe it has to do with uh, for ladies with their menstrual cycle. You just begin to say, what are some of the things uh, that I can begin to look and correlate uh, the experience of depression and anxiety that I have with events in my life. Uh, because what we want to see as we do that. Is that we can get information that will help us uh, address our depression and anxiety. Because as we, see, uh, as we see that what will happen is we'll recognize emotions. They, they do two things. They leave a behavioral and relational residue. So kind of like when you're in the shower and you get that soap residue that's there. Emotions leave a behavioral residue. Uh, And in chapter 3, that's part of what we'll look at. And in chapter 7, we'll come and we'll go, how do we remove some of that behavioral residue where depression and anxiety just makes itself at home in our life? And the second thing that it does is depression and anxiety begins to craft the story in which we understand our life. And that's what we'll look at in chapters 4 through 6 of how has depression and anxiety become the background story of my life that I just don't really understand my life apart from that being a, a major theme.